Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. So, hey, JC, how are you doing today? I'm good. I saw your podcast on Twitter and really liked the message. So I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. That's uh, that's very kind. Um, Could you go ahead and give us a brief bio and just talk to us a little bit about what you're interested in and kind of the big issues you're trying to solve? Sure. So from about 12 years old, I've been a utilitarian trying to maximize my positive impact on the world, maximize utility. That led me direct, immediately to bouncing around issues. I interned at GiveWell uh, when they were just getting started up when I was doing my bachelor's degree. I pretty quickly shifted towards animal issues, felt that they were very compelling, in particular the food system, the way animals are, are used and abused, and, and the environmental and other impacts of that as well. Um, and it sort of led me into a, a future-oriented, long-term how does social change succeed research angle. Um, So right now I'm actually working on my PhD at the University of Chicago and continuing to work with Sentience Institute, a think tank that I founded on moral circle expansion that researches social movements and emerging technologies. Awesome. So JC, I want to go all the way back to when you were 12 years old. Um, I, I find that really interesting. Did you just kind of have a moral intuition around utilitarianism or did you find a book? Like how, how did that happen? I'm really curious. Yeah, I think it's intuition driven, though at the time I was what philosophers would call a moral realist. I thought the truth about morality out there in the universe was that utilitarianism was correct. I didn't read a book. I hadn't been exposed to academic philosophy in any meaningful way. I was reasoning, trying to reason from first principles about what good and bad is. I was one of those kids who would like go off on a tangent, whether that was video games or uh, blacksmithing at one point. Um, I really got into ethics and and started thinking, okay, how do we deduce from uh, stealing is bad, protecting your family is good, what are the commonalities? Um, what is kind of the truth to the matter? And it seemed like the well-being of, of humans and, and eventually of all sentient creatures kind of seemed to be what it all boils down to. I could answer, you know, the, the tough moral questions rather than I grew up in rural Texas. So most people, it was a fight of the idioms. You know, I would say right. one, you would say the other, and you never really get anywhere. But maybe that's how we could reason about it uh, more systematically was, was from this viewpoint of utilitarianism. I really like that. So you've got this framework of like utilitarianism and then animals, you know, why are animals the issue that you're interested in? I know there's a lot of suffering that happens to animals. I mean, and this, I think this makes intuitive sense to most people. Like they really sat down and thought about it, but in your day to day, it gets completely glossed over. Yeah. Initially as a human, I was mostly thinking about human welfare and it felt weird, kind of uncomfortable to say that I would fight for another species and, you know, commit my time and energy to that. However, I was auditing a philosophy graduate seminar on the philosophy of consciousness. So on animal consciousness in particular, and all these different ways of approaching the question of of who's conscious and, and what's not. And it seemed like with all of the kind of plausible views, there was nothing that put animals' mental capacities, you know, their capacity to feel and these things that morally matter. Intelligence, language, that's different. But the things that, that constitute sentience at its core um, weren't so diminished that the numbers of animals didn't vastly outweigh any, any factor that you put on their uh, level of sentience. You know, the, in the food system, 
ecosystem in particular. There are over 100 billion animals at any given time. Uh, globally, around 90% of those live on factory farms. In the US, that's around 99%. Um, we have some USDA data in the US on farm size that allows us to take a best guess, though it's highly uncertain. And that seems like a really serious moral issue, you know, even with a discount rate. Um, of 10, 100, or even more when it comes to animals. And then if you consider wild animals, those dwarf the number of farmed animals. Um, and even if you consider uh, less popular, uh, lower populations of animals, like animals used in laboratories or even dogs and cats, they're getting so few of society's resources and it's so easy to neglect and abuse and, and cause suffering to them that I think there's a good moral case to, to work on those issues even above most human issues. Very interesting, very interesting. Um, I'm from Eastern North Carolina. And we produce most of the, like some huge percentage of the world's pigs, a lot of hog farms. Um, and, it, and, you know, you start reading about um, pig intelligence and, you know, like, you know, they're really, they're really smart beings and they've got all these like pretty rich emotions. And it's, and, and like in comparison, to a, it's tough to see a distinction between a pig and a dog, at least mm -hmm. in, in my, in my head. And, and so that, that's one of the things that originally got me started thinking about these kind of issues. Um, but do you think, uh, domesticated animal animals live a lot worse than they did in the past. Is it better? You know, how, what, do you have a feeling on that issue? Um, I know there's a lot of work that like, you know, I, I, I remember reading school about like Temple Grandin and you mm. know, how we can make things a little bit more ethical on the, on the edges. Right. Um, but do you have a feeling on that? Yeah. When Steven Pinker released his most recent book, um, Enlightenment Now in 2018, I wrote an op-ed in response to it saying, yeah, the world is getting better. That's a good case. But think about the animals um, because it throws kind of a wrench in, in that whole um, optimistic outlook, uh, namely because of the advent of factory farming in the early 1900s. You know, the fact that the wartime economy uh, spurred uh, a growth of industrial agriculture in the U.S., which is now spread across the world. It was, it was about in the 90s when kind of, you know, China and other countries were, were finishing up a, at least an initial industrialization of their food system. Um, but because because of that trend, things are a lot worse in terms of the sheer number of animals and then their treatment per animal. So the fact that now, instead of a you know flock of chickens that produces eggs and is eventually slaughtered for meat, you now have optimized birds being grown for meat who grow so much meat that you know they collapse under their own weight, suffer from a lot of genetic uh, health issues. And then you have egg-laying hens who, who lay over 300 eggs a year, jumbo-sized eggs that really wreak havoc on their reproductive system. It's not a pleasant experience with the hormones and with the egg-laying itself. Um, so this sort of optimization and, and efficiency, in a sense, of, of agriculture has made things a lot worse. I would say that in other regards and in kind of the common everyday understanding of animal welfare, things have gotten a lot better. You know, we talk about two moral circles usually. There's the attitudinal moral circle, what people say. And then there's the behavioral moral circle, what they actually do and how society treats various beings. And attitudinally, we're doing great. You know, the fact that it's not the medieval ages anymore, cat burning is no longer a, sp a sport. Uh, most people Positive. frown upon, exactly, they frown upon uh, the mistreatment of dogs and cats in people's homes. If you abuse an animal on the street, that's no longer seen as like, okay, that's your property, you do what you want. It's now that are part of our moral circle in some important way. And I think it's the fact that there's a disconnect, the fact that the abuse of farmed animals in particular, but other animals as well, happens behind closed doors is, is the only reason why it's able to survive in, in today's uh, moral sentiment. I think that makes a lot of sense. I also feel like I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this. I have this feeling that um, I, I know someone that 
was on the C-suite at Purdue Chicken. And the the big takeaway I got from him was that it was it's so incredibly competitive and it's like perfect competition to create like, you know, any of these meat products that, and it's gotten more competitive. So, you know, there's more pressure to like do things that are bad. Like you make the chickens, they're so huge. They only live for like 45 days. Um, because you're trying to meet the demands of the market where there used to be less competition. So maybe if you're an independent farmer and you just raised the chickens out in the pasture, you weren't as worried about that. Um, do you think that's a real effect? It definitely is right now in the, the kind of current U.S. industry. It's gotten to a point where if you can undercut somebody by one cent, you know, if they adopt a welfare policy that just makes theirs a penny more expensive, um, then you've just swept the market out from them. Right. Um, and that makes it interesting in terms of uh, plant-based foods and, you know, veggie burgers and things like that, because while most of those are expensive right now, that's because they're catering to a niche population who's right. interested in an organic, you know, kind of luxury labels. Uh, but if you can develop a plant-based substitute, that's going to be able to be adopted widely and it can undercut by just a penny. That means you're, you've beaten that market and they just can't get any more you know, efficient. They can't get any cheaper. Um, so you're able to, to maybe take over the market in that way. That's the approach of a company now called Rebellious uh, Foods uh, that's doing chicken nuggets. And then chicken nuggets gotcha. are this magical food because they're served in school cafeterias and kids don't really care what they're right. eating. Exactly. They get a salt and oil and, and protein and, and they're exactly. satisfied. And if it's better for them and if it's a penny cheaper, uh, it's it's a it's a hard um, sell to 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 ignore if you're you know doing the catering at a cafeteria. It has to get a lot of momentum. It has to get economies of scale going. But I think once that 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 virtuous cycle gets moving, uh, we'll see really rapid changes in those applications. Gotcha. And you mentioned a lot of the meat alternative products that are finally coming out. Um, I when I first saw the Impossible Burger, I was I was really excited. You know, it, this is not something I think about too much, animal welfare and things of that nature. But I was really excited because it was an example of um, using technology to make like it, it's not like an activist coming and braiding me or braiding someone and saying like you need to do this because it's wrong. It's like mm -hmm. here's the choice. It tastes better or it tastes the same. It's the same thing, but you don't have to be a bad person. You know, you don't have to do these bad things to these animals if you you know, make this choice. It, it makes it easy. Um, what's the current state of the art for that? Is it, you know, how close are we to just cultured meat? That's exactly the same one-to-one. -one. Um, are we close? How far off are we? Yeah, we're really close in a lot of ways in the sense that like an impossible burger is really great. And if it yeah. were the same price and the same convenience, you know, think of an airline where they just bring yeah. you out a meal with a burger and then you're not questioning what's on it. Right. Um, it can do really well in that sense. Um, however, you know, the devil is in the details. And then the right. hard part is a getting it from, you know, 95% similarity to a hundred percent. That's a lot harder than getting it from, let's say 60%, 60 to 95%. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's challenging to get those subtle cues. Um, people think about this a lot with dairy, um, especially the more artisanal dairies where there's like a grassy flavor to it or something. Um, right. and that's what a lot of the, uh, the, the microflora companies are working on. So the, so the, 
companies that are making uh, egg and dairy proteins from microorganisms like yeast, uh, companies like Perfect Day and, and Clara Foods. Um, cultured meat is, is, is magical in that sense because you by default get 100% similarity. It is the meat product. Um, there's some subtlety there in the sense of it grows in a different way. Um, do you need to electrically stimulate it the way that muscles are stimulated throughout an animal's life? Um, but those things don't seem prohibitively difficult. And said the issue there is cost. Um, right. And again, it's one of these things where they've brought it down from the $300,000 first uh, hamburger in 2013, Mark Post, you know, served it to journalists and it was a big deal. And, and now people say, oh, the price has dropped a, a thousand fold because now it's $300 for one of those burgers. Um, but that's going to be a really hard climb uh, to get the rest of the way down. And there's a lot of uncertainty around, for example, the growth factors that those cells are fed, um, which are very easy for our body to produce because we've got that cellular machinery. But right now we're only being produced in the biopharmaceutical industry where they're okay with large costs and they really care about perfect quality and these things, which is not how the human body works. And it's not how animal bodies work. Um, so they're kind of having to, to not reinvent, but drastically change that supply chain to get a product that, that suits the needs of food production. Um, so you've got a lot of hurdles ahead, but but things are in a really good state now. I think for the next five years, we're not going to see any, you know, uh, super fast adoption, revolutionary product. Uh, culture meat's not going to become a Walmart, you know, a staple right. quite yet. Uh, but after that point, and again, once you get those virtuous cycles going, you get a lot more revenue coming into these companies. They can spend that. They can get economies of scale. Uh, I think change will come very quickly. That's great. That's really exciting. Um, I wanted to move on a little bit now. I don't know. Have you been following the situation in Colorado? This this is actually really concerning to me. It seems to me that um, animal welfare and and um, eating meat is going to become a culture war issue mm. very very soon. And I, I find that to be that's very bad because the second it becomes a you know commonplace culture war issue, they're taking away our meat, right? This is really bad. Then then it occludes everything and. And the guy that goes in, he's like, oh, this impossible burger, it tastes the same. It's, it's you know, half the price. I'm going to take that. He's like, heck no, the Democrats won't, you know, they, they, they're making me eat this, you know, fake soy meat or whatever. And you've got this uh, huge issue. What can we do to avoid that happening? Um, because I think it would, it would put the adoption much farther down the road. Does that make sense? And yeah, is there what... anything we can do? Yeah, yeah. I think about this in terms of the different routes that social movements can take to success. And it's very different for different movements. Um, like, I don't know what your views are on the current US climate policy. Um, but just from the strategic perspective of like, let's say you think the climate crisis is really bad, action needs to be taken, we need to, 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 to get the problem solved. Um, I think that needs to be a partisan issue. It's just already set as a culture war issue. It's already it's too late now. Um, it's way too divided late. on party yeah. grounds. Exactly. So what they need to do is just um, pick it up and, and carry it on the shoulders of the left, make it the number one issue for a period of time uh, where they can push through it, especially when they have more control over the houses and, and of course, the presidency right now with Biden. Um, that's a really challenging route in U.S. politics. U.S. Right. politics is very uh, centralized. There are a few issues that take up almost all of the discourse. It's not like European parliamentary system where there are all sorts of you know different issues being fought in government at any different time. Um, if you're a niche party and, and have some pet issue and Sorry for my background noise. That's actually oh, it's all good. A, a chicken. Uh, in, That's in great. My room. Awesome. <laughs> Speaking of, um, so I think that in the U.S., 
The other big route that you have available is just to dodge the federal government or at least dodge uh, mainstream politics. I think what right. you're speaking of is a culture war. Um, I think that's more easily done with technology. So it's sort of lining up well that that might be the route to success. Right. I don't think it's going to be like, um, I mean, so so subsidies for factory farmers are a big issue. You know, it's like something like $30 billion right. um, going towards not the sort of farmers that you would hope subsidies would go to, not the small right. family farmers or anything. Of course. Um, and that is a kind of pillar of factory farming that you could potentially cut down. Um, I think that'd be really difficult. And there's some tentative math that some economists have done that suggests it would only increase the price of you know a hamburger by a few cents or something. It wouldn't gotcha. be quite revolutionary change. So I think while I like to see people working on those issues and grabbing low-hanging fruit, um, most of it can't go through that route. We're going to need technology that's adopted um, by society as a whole, um, by companies that are, again, switching their supply chains, like school cafeterias, switching to the plant-based chicken nuggets. Um, we're going to need a kind of science-driven movement that's being debated as a policy issue is, okay, everyone agrees that we should switch to these things. How do we best do that um, as policy wonks? Um, not as, let me run on this platform and, and try to succeed. Right, We've right. got some data. We, we One thing we started doing in 2017 is collecting nationally representative survey data on attitudes towards animal farming. And while from 2017 to 2019, things kind of increased, it's all kind of within margin of error, so it's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, for the question, uh, whether you agree or disagree with the following statement, factory farming is one of the most important social issues in the world today. That started at 69% in um, 2017, which was great. Um, oh, wow. I mean, you know, it's a big tent, you know, people can say that for a lot of different issues, right. um, but it dropped 20% to, to 49% in 2019. Um, really? And I don't want to read the tea leaves too much. It's it's always hard with survey data. But one reason for that might be the, the increasing polarization, the Trump era, um, where again, agree or disagree. It was a very centralized time um, when people were focused on a few issues and everything might have went off to the side. So anyway, I think technology, I think a side route is most important. Um, I don't like things that really strong identify the left with animal farming. I think some of that's inevitable. Um, right. There's a kind of underlying difference between the, the U.S. political parties that we can't get around, um, but we shouldn't, you know, uh, exacerbate that. That makes sense. And that brings up my next question, which I don't see a lot in the um, animal welfare discourse, which I think would be a good to address for many of the reasons we just mentioned. It's, you know, thinking about, okay, what can farmers do, like especially animal domesticated farmers do, once, you know, we get to this point where self-cultured meat is a lot cheaper, it's a lot better. Um, so they're not resistant to it because we don't want them, you, you know, we don't want them all banding together, spending a ton of money to say, you know, we don't want it. We do not want this, you know, spending money on advertisements that cultured meat, it's, you know, created in a lab, it's terrible for you and, and, and putting things. Have you thought about that at all? Um, yeah, it's tough um, because on one hand, it seems like if we were to get them on board, that would be really great. And right. having this again, like bipartisan movement, avoid that roadblock. Exactly. Um, I don't know if we can. Um, the right. big challenge is that if people's livelihood um, is animal farming, is is not right. protein, not 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 the Tyson foods, the kind of meat processors, those can and, and to some extent are pivoting or at least now including yeah. alternative proteins. Um, but the people who are doing it every day, they're just always going to be opposed to this. At least, right. you know, it would be a decades long project to get around that to, to, you know, get them all out of the industry, get them all farming both animals and plants or something like that. Um, and by that time, you know, I, I think that's sort of the timeline that we're working with anyway. Right. Um, that's kind exactly. of a, how long I hope it will be until we actually get it done 
in the current status quo. Um, so it's 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 challenging. Um, I think some efforts like uh, providing a using the surplus of 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 resources of financial resources in particular um, from these new products because they just consume fewer resources overall and right. allocating some of that to farmers who switch um, a few farmers who switch you know putting them up in the limelight telling their stories trying to inspire some other farmers to switch a big thing is generational and just like right. every generation you know many kids who are farmers don't go into farming um, yeah, I think that's definitely. going to continue and 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 encouraging that to uh, it's tricky because in some sense, like having more farmers would be a good thing. You know, industrialization has done a lot of bad things to agriculture, right. um, but in particular for factory farming and, and for those sorts of farms, um, getting people out of there. I do think that, you know, the, the quote unquote humane animal products, the things that aren't factory farms, which again, 1% of animals in the U.S. don't live on factory farms, um, right. so but that tiny. 1% is going to be a group that is pushing against factory farming products because it's a common enemy. It is also hurting their business. I think that makes sense. Um, can you talk a little bit about moral circle? Like what is, what is the moral circle and thinking about expanding it a little bit? Sure. So to start on politics where we were talking about, you know, a lot of social and political movements over the past several hundred years, we could categorize as moral inclusion movements. So taking some group and bringing them from outside humanity's moral circle, or at least the kind of the mainstream moral circle and in enveloping them in that. Um, the kind of first moral circle expansion movement in, in modern society um, was the British anti-slavery movement and taking people who were literally regarded as property and moving them into the category of legal persons. Um, and only now, you know, four, four, uh, 400 years later, um, people are starting to do that with animals, try to get them into the category of legal persons. Um, but the moral circle was laid out by Herocles, um, the second century Stoic philosopher. Um, you know, our moral circle as humans starts with our immediate family, it goes out to relatives, goes out to a village, eventually it's all of humanity, um, and even animal kind was being discussed at that point. Um, William Hartpole Lecky um, in, I believe, the 1600s, um, a historian, uh, wrote about this going from uh, the Romans who saw gladiators as a perfectly legitimate um, treatment of, of people to now over the many centuries later, seeing it as barbaric um, and, and referenced that by the circle having expanded. Um, Herocles didn't talk about the, the moral circle expanding over time, uh, just talked about it as a static thing. So that was kind of the first mention of a, a expanding one. And then now Peter Singer, you know, a, a big advocate of animal rights, very famous, um, has, has wrote a book in 1981 called The Expanding Circle, um, in which he, he talked about it in more detail. And now it's become more of a part of common parlance. Um, we're only now, I, a colleague of mine who's a philosopher and I are trying to co-author a paper that lays it out in philosophical detail, uh, what the moral circle is and how it expands over time. For example, is it is a gross expansion? Is it just kind of in total more included or is there some concept of net expansion? You know, if we're some, we're losing some members of the moral circle, you know, think of religion and deities and, and spirits and ancestors, all of those are less included now than they used to be. Um, can we say that our moral circle has net expanded? So there's a lot of nuance to be had, but ultimately it's just this intuitive notion of whom we give moral, legal, social, political consideration. Gotcha. Is it, do you have a feeling that it's people are, you know, humans are getting better in some sense, like morally better, or do you have a sense that it's, we get richer. And so we have more capacity to care, uh, at bigger levels. Yeah, it's a good question and a longstanding debate among historians and 
historians are always hesitant to touch on causality. So right. it in some sense still hasn't gotten resolved. I mean, it maybe it would never actually get resolved. In slavery has been the biggest discussion. Many people have argued that slavery was kind of unprofitable at the period right before gotcha. its decline. Um, there, are, It's a rich debate, and, and I don't think there's a clear answer. Um, but I think there's enough of a notion with, with timing, um, with the arguments cited, you know, the, the policymakers who finally passed abolition, uh, which I believe today might be the anniversary of, of the British uh, oh, wow. nice. abolition of slavery. Um, with, with that, they were citing moral arguments. Um, they were doing it even when their personal interests were invested in you know, the slavery industry and whatnot. Um, so it seems to have been, at least to a large extent, morally motivated. That being said, you know, when it comes to the history of the moral circle expanding, would I say that economics or other forces played a larger role? Maybe economics. I mean, economic growth has just been crazy. Uh, history is very much a hockey stick, you know, starting with the industrial revolutions in, in the 1700s. Um, so I think that has created huge impact. And I think when you have to have moral progress with no technology or economics involved, it can be very slow. You know, abolition took a long time. Civil rights took a long time. Um, you know, there's a, a book I was reading recently on how the NAACP uh, was working on anti-lynching and in the very early 1900s, the tens and, and the 20s. Um, and, and building up the momentum that only in the 50s and the 60s were they able to take to the national spotlight and, and get board versus board of education and that sort of thing passed. Um, whereas with technology, you know, you look at uh, personal computers and how quickly they were adopted or, or smartphones or um, now maybe electric cars and renewable energy. Some of that's going slowly, um, but it's, it's certainly going a lot more quickly than historical decades long, uh, entirely moral movements. Definitely. That that's really interesting, and I, I'm wondering. There's a great paper. It's it's uh, a couple of researchers. They're fairly related, Jonathan Haidt. I can't remember their names, but they wrote a paper called "The Ideological Differences in the Expanse of the Moral Circle." Mm -hmm. uh, do you think there are some hard coded differences between people across the political spectrum in how they think about the moral circle? So the main findings of the paper were that mm -hmm. you know the more conservative you are, the more you're focused on, you know, kin altruism, your family, mm -hmm. and then like country and up. And, and then if you, the more liberal you are, the more, the wider the the circle of moral concerns is. Do you think there are hard-coded kind of differences or is it kind of, you know, this social imprinting you get? As yeah, it's always hard to say hard-coded um, because the U.S. political spectrum itself is somewhat arbitrary and right. you go to other countries exactly. and you just don't see that access, at least not as the most important one. Right. Um, however, in the current U.S. setup, it is true that conservatism is hosted with a range of issues that are kind of moral circle-ish. Uh, social dominance orientation is, is very common and explains a lot of the variation and, and all sorts of human psychology and, and actual right. behavior. Um, and that's, you know, much higher. It's kind of the view of should some parts of society dominate, be hierarchical, be above others. Right. Um, I think the kinship thing definitely in the, the nearby. I mean, I think of the people I grew up with, you know, in East Texas, who many of them were extremely compassionate, caring people, but yes. most of them had a very small moral circle. Narrow, narrow focus. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was, you know, caring about the local forests, which was environmentalist. It was right. caring for ecosystems, but it was right nearby. It wasn't the global exactly. kind of climate change movement that that U.S. liberals tend to care more about. So, yeah, I think it's there. I think it's important. Um, I think there are other axes that like 
make uh, bringing in conservatives and and having a just ignoring the technology, but just saying we have to be a big movement uh, that make it really valuable. You know, Matthew Scully, for example, who was a Bush speechwriter, um, spoke to conservatives and and invoked different terminology and different uh, right. kind of moral appeals that was really valuable, even for people who are across the political spectrum. I mean, one finding by some researchers at Stanford, um, uh, Jan Vogel and, and Rob Willer and a few others, um, is that if you present liberal policies using conservative appeals and conservative rhetoric, uh, that at least in some contexts can be more effective than pitching those liberal policies uh, using a, a liberal kind of discursive toolkit, um, which I think is really interesting. You know, that's one of the main moral foundations uh, findings is that conservatives appeal to all six moral foundations, um, liberals mostly appeal to only three of them. Um, so in some sense, it's another way in which like the 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 U.S. political spectrum is stacked and is is distinct across the categories. Is that the conservatives have a broader base that they make full use of when it comes to elections and and and, and general political uh, fights across the aisle? That's really interesting, and it seems really important to keep in mind when you're working on these issues because uh, I, I see this problem with some social movements where if you get you know you're stacked on on one side of the political spectrum and then you decide scoring points is better than mm -hmm. actually you know moving the ball forward um yeah. on the movement and so so can you describe what are some successful social movements and what do they have in common with other other successful social movements i know unsuccessful is more difficult because there's a wider range of how you can fail you know yeah. but what does success look like and and um, what are some common themes you've seen yeah, it's interesting that you asked that right now because we have a synthesis of our social movement case studies that we've done at Sentience Institute. Uh, I believe we've done about five or six awesome. um, that we're drafting right now and will hopefully be out within the next month. So it'll have some more detail. Um, but one, one, the biggest overarching story that, you know, I used to be you could say a more traditional kind of uh, vegan activist you know, researcher, but I also care about the issue right. and, and thought that by the numbers, if you want to maximize the number of animals helped, handing out these leaflets uh, and, and running these online ads where you can show people, you know, a video like meet your meat on uh, about the cruelty right. in the food system, get a good proportion of them to, you know, pledge to go vegetarian or uh, look up the URL on the back of the leaflet. And they've done some tracking of these things and it's right. meaningful because of the scale of those things, you know, handing out hundreds, thousands of leaflets a day, well, you know, many, many individual activists have handed out a million in their career. Um, that's huge. Like that could do a ton of good. Um, but I've drifted away from that. And, and it's part, in large part because of looking at history and seeing that rather than individual, you know, consumer behavior change, institutional change seems to be a lot more effective. So gotcha. when you use individual change, it needs to be for like a specific goal. So veganism shouldn't be like the end goal. It's, it's, it's a nice thing that you can do to help a lot of animals. And that's wonderful if, if that's right. how you choose to make an impact. Um, but it should be seen as a means towards ending factory farming. Um, so in anti-slavery, for example, to return to that, um, there was a boycott of sugar, but it was very targeted, intended to apply pressure to very specific institutional stakeholders, to the specific companies, to the specific politicians, to got motivate it, it. the abolition eventually of the slave trade and then uh, slavery as an institution itself. Um, I think we're seeing a similar thing play out in environmentalism, where plastic straws aren't that important. In right, the that's not of the big issue. 
Right, right. You know, if, if we got rid of, you know, the waste of fishing nets, you know, if we, we stopped fishing fish and, and produced cell cultured fish, we could do vastly more good. Um, but plastic straws are just so accessible. They're so easy to stigmatize. Um, they're so easy to kind of fight over on social media or, or in, in restaurants, let's say. Um, so that's another example. Yeah, I, I would say that in general, institutional changes is, is the number one takeaway from historical social movements. Gotcha. That's interesting. So does that look like you know, McDonald's, so let's say McDonald's, I, I'm not sure, I don't know about their meat policies at all, but let's say they have abhorrent policies. Is it, you know, pressuring the CEO? Is it like boycott McDonald's? Like, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, both of those have been employed. Um, the big story with kind of institutional reforms, and you talked about this, uh, you talked about this earlier with the kind of perfect market that happens in animal agriculture. You have to kind of get everyone on board, or at least gotcha. the very big producers. Um, so the way it worked with cage-free eggs, which saw huge successes in around 2015 up to 2017, interesting, um, was in large part because Carl Icahn uh, wanted to do something for <laughs> the Humane Society of the United States. He wanted to help out. Um, and the thing that they asked him to do was to help with McDonald's and help get McDonald's on board with cage-free eggs. Um, it also kind of caught the industry off guard. You know, these retailers started making these commitments because of these negative pressure campaigns um, and because of people like Carl Eggen. Um, and that led to uh, just a cascade where then the smaller companies had to follow suit. You know, once you can isolate KFC doesn't have this policy, but Burger King, you know, Taco right. Bell, I know all these other companies do, it becomes challenging. It's a bit tricky there because some of them are owned by, I guess, young brands. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, McDonald's getting that kind of gets you the rest of the industry. Um, now it's more challenging because they've been doing a lot of negative campaigns against kind of this whole group uh, to get better policies for chickens raised from meat. One of the issues there is that chickens raised from meat are, are there's no single equivalent to cage-free eggs. Uh, chickens raised for meat are not raised in cages. Um, they instead have a host of breeding issues and health issues and space issues. You know, they, they could use more space, even though they're not kept in, in cages because it would, it would bruise them. Um, so what do we do now? Well, it turns out that it's really challenging because Tyson Foods and some other companies know what to expect. And they're applying pressure from the other direction on McDonald's and on these other companies saying, don't, you know, if, if, if you commit to this policy, we'll leave you out to dry. We'll supply everyone else and, and you can't, can't do it. Um, so we're not sure where it will go next, but yeah, historically it's been pressuring the CEO. I mean, a lot of environmental and animal activists have applied very direct pressure going to people's houses, protesting outside of them, including some illegal activity, um, negative billboards, um, criticizing the TV ads, investigations have been the number one kind of moral force in uh, gotcha. pushing against factory farming, starting from the early 2000s, just getting on the evening news. Now we're at the point where if you're a, an activist out there trying to raise awareness for animal welfare, you can bring up, hey, have you seen those investigations and how cruelly those animals are treated? Right. Virtually everyone in the US will, will have seen it in some form over the past you know decade or so. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's it's effective. I, I think we're now reaching a point where again we maybe need to pivot to technology and uh, other kind of policy approaches. But but nonetheless, it's had a big impact so far. That's great. That's really interesting. I, I like that idea because it it shifts the sales challenge to you know maybe there's a hundred stakeholders and at these big food you know let's say all the big restaurant chains in the U.S. versus you know. 300 million in the U S if you went to talk to everybody individually and try to change their habits, um, a, a little bit more straightforward. So I wanted to move on a little bit and talk about, um, let's see, uh, are you down for some overrated underrated? Sure. Kind of, I stole this from Tyler Cowan. 
Um, so veganism, overrated, underrated. I know we've talked about it a little bit. Do you want just a one word answer? Or oh, you can give me a seconds. sentence or two. As long as you sentence want. Sentence or two. Uh, veganism, underrated general population among vegans, overrated. Gotcha. That makes sense. As Temple. with most kind of moral movements and identities. Right. Yeah. On the inside. Um, Temple Grandin, overrated, underrated? Part of the challenge here is that uh, cows actually represent a very small portion of animals raised for food uh, because they're so large. They produce so gotcha. many calories, so many servings per animal. Um, so anyone who's focused their work on helping cows is going to have less impact than you would expect if you aren't considering that. Um, gotcha. Additionally, there's this concern about complacency and, and the fact that if you make really small changes, which are improvements for the animals, and I applaud that, um, they can reduce the impetus for further progress. And I think Temple Grandin's work has done that to some extent. Um, however, in general, I think there's more evidence. This is another thing we see throughout social movements that um, there's more momentum than complacency. Um, so overall, you know, I'd say Temple Grandin has probably been net positive if I had to guess, um, but overrated just because that's the go-to animal welfare activist, whereas Definitely. the corporate campaigners who got cage-free eggs passed had much more of an impact on the animals' lives. Gotcha. And do you do you think cage the cage free eggs requirement is it? Because I, I, I remember reading some articles when this was going on. Some people saying this is really not that big of a change. Do you think it was like that? That's a is you consider that a pretty big win? I think it's a pretty big win. I think there are a lot of momentum-based reasons to think so. Like it gotcha. was the first big victory of this kind of farmed animal movement. It built connections with not just companies, but journalists and donors. It got many cat and dog donors to start donating to farmed animal nonprofits. Um, gotcha. It built the momentum that Mercy for Animals used to, uh, which is a very large farmed animal organization, to spawn the Good Food Institute, which is now the number one organization working with food technology. Um, and they were partly able to do that because of the momentum they'd gotten from cage free eggs and other sources like undercover investigations. So I think that's really powerful. Um, there's, I think the main debate to be had is in the negative impacts of, of cage-free hens. So for example, the fact that uh, they stir up a lot of dust and kind of ammonia and it kind of gotcha. reduce air quality. So I think there are downsides. Um, I mean, it's uncertain how that all um, adds up, but I think overall it's better for the hens and it's definitely better for social progress as a whole. Gotcha. That's great. Effective altruism. Overrated, underrated? Underrated as a whole. I mean, I wish it, this is never going to happen, at least not in the foreseeable future, but that just as companies kind of check the box for sustainability, I wish they checked the box off for, did we do our cost effectiveness estimate for positive <laughs> impact in the world? Um, that would be wonderful. I, I, it's, it's not as succinct um, as, as sustainability is. Um, however, you know, there are challenges and in some ways it's overrated again, within the movement as most things are, it's kind of seen as a panacea. I mean, one of the challenges is there's kind of thick and thin or, or Mott and Bailey um, of, of effective altruism. So in some sense, you can't disagree with it. It's doing more good is better, but in a stricter sense with a specific set of cause areas and things like that, there's definitely a tendency to be overconfident. I know many of us were back in the early days and in the you know early 2010s. Um, but right now I think it's, it's hit its stride more so. And I appreciate that it's been focused on animal issues and, and long-term uh, issues that are really important. I think that's great. And I think act just the act of trying to do better is is really important so just it, like ineffective vultures like we're going to try to do good in a more efficient manner like just actively you know making that happen i think is really a good idea 
Yeah. Or just having a name for it. I mean, that's what right. I hear from almost everyone who I talk to and who gets involved with it is like, oh yeah, I've been thinking of this when I worked for this nonprofit and saw it was having these problems. But just the fact that now there's a label and a community has done a lot for bringing right. in resources and coordinating people, but also just that individual, like there's a name to put to this feeling I have. I, this gripe it. yeah. I have. Yeah. It's great. Um, I've got one last question for you, JC. What, if people want to help animals, particularly factory farmed animals, what's the best thing to do? What's the best way to people? And, and I know that's it's very broad because people have different skill sets, but in general, what's the best thing people can do to help? Yeah, I think getting involved in some way. I always encourage people to get involved in, in the community and a movement, and that can take many different forms. Uh, the Humane League has a lot of local chapters around the U.S., most major cities. Uh, if you live in one of those, joining up and uh, going to protests or signing petitions or things like that is, is wonderful. Um, if you can do it specifically in food technology, even better. You know, If you can volunteer for an organization like the Good Food Institute or something like that, that's wonderful. Um, I think you know diet change is great, and it's something we can can all do. It's it's not a this or that um, with, with the activism itself. And if you can cut out um, factory farm chicken uh, products and fish products, because those animals are so small and treated so poorly and still show a lot of the evidence of sentience that we see in pigs, cows, gotcha. you know, dogs and cats, cutting out those products can be really important. And I know there's some debate with, you know, climate and, and whether, you know, um, red meat products have more of an effect on that. Um, but when you try to crunch the numbers and look at the kind of specific impact of a serving of each food, it seems the animal welfare impact is, is larger, is more significant and, and is more easily avoided, you know, cause it's always tricky with climate stuff. Whereas if you're not eating the chickens, you're not making the chickens suffer, which is really great. Right direct effect there. Excellent. Um, are there any, you know, um, parting thoughts you'd like to leave, leave people with and where can people find your work? I think that in terms of progress studies and thinking about the world getting better, um, it's good to turn that into a future orientation and think Got about it. the ways in which, um, for example, Stephen Pinker in Better Angels of Our Nature talks about these like five forces, um, five better angels that have led to progress and think about which one of those will persist and which ones won't. So for example, with technology, we haven't touched on one of the kind of the big downsides or reasons to, to not focus on that yourself, which is the fact that lots of companies are wanting to do it. They're wanting to make money. Uh, technology is, is monotonic. You know, it kind of, we only get more technology in the absence of uh, civilization catastrophe. Um, so the moral progress is more contentious, less certain, and it can be good to right. get on that side of history. Um, so I think just extending that and, you know, once you've kind of figured out that, hey, the world's getting a lot better in a lot of important ways, that sort of macro historical view can give you much better insight into what to do with your career and how to have a positive impact in the long run. So I would encourage people to take that historical view and, and turn it into a future oriented view as well. Um, yeah, in terms of where people can find me, I'm on Twitter. I don't tweet as much now because I'm neck deep in, in a PhD program. I'm always happy to get emails and stuff from people. Um, my email's on my website and everything. So happy to hear from folks. Excellent. Well, thanks, JC. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Will. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 